In January of 1987, the Enron Corporation, a Houston-based natural gas pipeline company, was still in its infancy, but already on the verge of ruin. After just one year of operation, it posted a $14 million loss. The lone bright spot was Enron Oil, a subsidiary in the business of trading oil shares. It boasted a $28 million profit the previous year. By the end of January, it became clear why Enron Oil was apparently making money while the rest of the company was struggling. They were cooking the books. Meanwhile, the executives responsible took lucrative kickbacks from fraudulent transactions and pocketed millions of Enron's money for themselves. In February, the crooks were called to face judgment from Enron's CEO Ken Lay and the board of directors. Financial records had been falsified, millions had been stolen, and if the SEC or IRS found out, there would be hell to pay. But the hard truth was that Enron Oil was the only part of the company that could post a profit. So what if a couple million disappeared off the corporate books? So what if it was all just a little illegal? Why bite the hand that feeds you? So Ken Lay and the Enron Board of Directors chose to look the other way. Rather than punish those responsible or alert the authorities that a crime had taken place, an Enron executive made a simple request of the con artists. Please keep making us millions. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. This is our first episode on the Enron scandal. At its peak, the Houston-based energy company was the seventh largest corporation in America, claiming a revenue of $100 billion. But behind its dazzling facade was a toxic culture of corporate greed, corruption, and fraud. This week, we'll explore how various Enron executives, especially CEO Ken Lay and COO Jeffrey Skilling, engineered the debauched, sinister beast that was Enron. Next week, we'll explore how the House of Cards collapsed under the weight of its own decadence, leading to one of the biggest corporate bankruptcies in American history. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. 
She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Enron has become a byword for corporate fraud on a massive scale. Few companies have experienced such rapid growth, nor such catastrophic collapse. So cataclysmic was Enron's implosion that it led the US federal government to pass new laws regulating corporate boards and public accounting firms. To understand how Enron became so nefarious, we must turn to the executives who ran the show. These are the perverse corporate warlocks who conjured up new methods of fiscal deceit. And so the story of Enron begins with its CEO and chairman, Ken Lay. Lay was born to a struggling Missouri family and had to work tirelessly to put himself through college. According to author Mimi Swartz, while at the University of Missouri in the late 1960s, Lay came upon the belief that success went to the man who could predict evolutionary changes, take advantage of the resulting chaos, and emerge the dominant player. Economics professor Pinckney Walker became Lay's mentor and encouraged the bright young student to study how government policy shaped financial markets. And in 1971, when Walker was appointed to the Federal Power Commission by President Nixon, he asked Lay to join him as his aide. Lay made quite a splash in Washington. Just a year after he arrived, Nixon appointed him as Deputy Undersecretary of Energy for the Department of the Interior. Lay didn't have any trouble landing a gig. His personal references were effusive and unmitigated. Only one offered a small quibble against him, just three little words. Maybe too ambitious. For centuries, people have been of two minds about the merits of ambition. It is either the key characteristic of those who have shaped history or the elixir of the unscrupulous. The Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca the Younger wrote that ambition is a kind of dropsy. The more a man drinks, the more he covets. But on the other hand, a study published in the Journal of Applied Psychology found that ambition alone does not create a feeling of unquenchable desire for unattainable outcomes. And the study goes on to suggest that more ambitious people had higher levels of life satisfaction and longevity. In the case of Ken Lay, his ambition initially served him well, leading to a meteoric rise. He became vice president for corporate planning at Florida Gas in 1975. Within three years, he was president of the entire company. In 1984, Lay transferred to Houston Natural Gas, or H&G, 
the precursor to Enron. Right around the time Lei was named CEO of HNG, the federal government was just beginning to ease restrictions on the once strictly controlled natural gas industry. For Lei, the day of deregulation couldn't come soon enough. He may have been a devout member of the Methodist Church, but his true religion was laissez-faire economics. Deregulation, he believed, would solve all of the natural gas industry's woes. And most importantly, it would make him very, very rich. Lay's strategy to become the dominant player was to make HNG as big as possible, as fast as possible. Once the floodgates were open, Lay believed that the free market would raise the price of natural gas, allowing the companies with the biggest pipeline networks to seize a competitive edge. This get-big-fast mindset quickly became deeply embedded into the culture of Enron. This attitude also explains, to an extent, why things went so horribly wrong at the company. In order to get big fast, Enron had to take on debt. But to cover their debts, they had to grow even bigger, which only necessitated more debt. It was a vicious cycle. The true depravity of Enron was still years away, but the seed was planted when Lay took over HNG and pursued growth at any cost. Implementing his strategy of relentless growth, Lay arranged for HNG to be acquired by a much larger pipeline company, Internorth. Together, they became HNG Internorth. Though HNG was the smaller company and the one being bought out, its executives managed to get eight seats on the board to Internorth's 12. More tellingly, the deal specified that Lay would become CEO and chairman of the company after 18 months. Internorth's CEO had agreed to it all because he was going to walk away with a $2 million severance package. For the other Internorth executives, however, as soon as the ink was dry, they realized they'd been had. Furious, the Internorth employees rebelled against their CEO and forced him out of the company early. But all that accomplished was to make Ken Lay CEO of HNG Internorth ahead of schedule. Determined to consolidate his position, Lay set about purging Internorth hardliners from the board. Within three years, Lay was completely in control of the company. Though Internorth had been the one to purchase HNG, when the dust settled, it was Lay and his loyalists who wound up in charge. Once he was firmly at the helm, Lay decided that the company needed a new name. He hired an expensive New York consulting firm, which performed four months' worth of research to come up with the name Enteron. But when Lay announced it to the world in the spring of 86, the Wall Street Journal informed him that Enteron was a synonym for the digestive tract. Lay was not excited about the comparison between natural gas pipelines and bodily functions, so after an emergency board meeting, the name was changed to Enron. Even with the rebrand, Enron got off to a rocky start. Lay's beloved deregulation ended up biting him in the butt. 
Once restrictions were lifted on the natural gas industry, the market was flooded with cheap product and profits plummeted. After their first year, Enron reported a loss of $14 million. In January of 1987, Moody's Investors Services downgraded Enron's credit rating to junk status. Enron had just gotten started, and it was already on the brink of collapse. The only division of the company that was making money was Enron Oil, which oversaw the trading of oil shares. And the only reason that Enron Oil appeared so strong was because, since 1985, they had been shifting profits. Growth, at any cost, was still Enron's modus operandi. Enron required constant bank loans in order to fund growth. But in order to be approved for those loans, the company needed to produce a certain amount of income every quarter. That's where profit shifting came in. It was a bit of accounting hocus-pocus to make it appear as if Enron was producing earnings every quarter. Basically, in order to prove to Wall Street that they were increasing earnings, profits would be moved between contracts. Losses were offset to specifically constructed Enron subsidiaries so that Enron Oil's books would only show gains. Profit shifting in and of itself isn't necessarily illegal. It's frequently used by multinational corporations to move profits from higher to lower tax jurisdictions. Still, the architects of the scheme, Enron Oil CEO Louis Borget and Treasurer Thomas Mastroeni, took profit-sharing from merely unethical to truly criminal. Their scheme was uncovered in January of 1987 by the head of Enron's internal audit department. The next month, Borget and Mastroeni were summoned to Enron's headquarters in Houston to answer for the discrepancies. Enron executives inquired into funds which had disappeared from corporate accounts only to reappear in Mastroeni's personal account. The higher-ups were also curious about payments reportedly made to someone named M. Yass. Mastroeni assured the board that the suspicious payments were merely bonuses to oil traders that they didn't want to explain to Enron executives. With the cards on the table, it was undeniably clear that Borget and Mastroeni had cooked the books, embezzled from the company, and lied about it. But Enron execs were concerned that if they exposed Enron oil, they'd have to disclose the profit-shifting transactions to the SEC and face the wrath of the IRS. Rather than face these consequences, Enron quietly swept the whole thing under the rug. The reason was simple. Enron Oil made money. In fact, Ken Lay said at a board meeting that Borgetta Mastroeni made too much money to be fired. So rather than reprimand either Borget or Mastroeni, Enron's president told them to keep up the good work. They knew Borgetta Mastroeni were stealing, but as long as they kept turning a profit, a little internal theft could be forgiven. Lay and the Enron Board of Directors had faced their first moral test, and they failed miserably. 
As it turned out, their decision to tacitly condone Enron Oil's fraud nearly cost them the whole company. Coming up, we'll explore how Borget nearly sank Enron and how one executive fought to save it. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In early 1987, Enron oil executives Louis Borget and Thomas Mastroeni were caught stealing from the company and engaging in fraudulent practices. However, their crimes were forgiven by Enron CEO Ken Lay because the pair made the company millions of dollars. By October, though, Borget's golden goose was no longer laying eggs. He had bet Enron Oil's assets on the belief that oil prices were about to drop. But instead, they went up. Way up. And the higher they went, the more money Borget and Enron Oil lost. He lost so much, in fact, that the entire conglomerate was now in jeopardy. Enron Oil was short 84 million barrels of petroleum, and if the company had to cover its position at the time, they would have lost $1 billion. It was a disastrous situation, one that they could not hope to survive. As soon as Borget and Mastroeni became liabilities, they were ejected from the company. Mike McElroy, the head of Enron's liquid fuel division, stepped in to save the day. He and a small team worked 20-hour days for three weeks straight to shrink Enron's position enough that they could survive covering it. McElroy bluffed his way through the crisis so the public wouldn't realize what dire straits they were in. He bought barrels and sold them on the market, signaling that the company was awash in crude instead of terribly short. Once the market finally turned and oil prices went down, McElroy closed down their position. Thanks to him, Enron lost only $140 million instead of a cool billion. Earlier in the year, Lay and the other Enron executives not only looked the other way at the profit-shifting scheme, they openly praised it. But now that they had to publicly report a loss, Lay and the other higher-ups pretended to be astonished and outraged by the behavior of Borget and Mastroeni. At a company meeting in October of 1987, Lay insisted he had been completely ignorant of what Borget and Mastroeni had done. According to Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind, authors of The Smartest Guys in the Room, Lay told his employees, if anyone could say that I knew, let them stand up. McElroy, the company's savior, had to be physically restrained from standing and confronting Lay. In the aftermath, Enron's stock price did fall, and the SEC and U.S. Attorney's Office launched investigations. Ultimately, the government decided not to prosecute the company, 
Borghetti was sentenced to a year in jail for securities fraud and five years probation, while Mastroeni received two years probation. Lay promised that Enron would never again bet the company's future on speculative commodities trading and financial futures. He promised that Enron had learned its lesson. It hadn't. As for why Enron didn't learn from its mistakes, some explanation might be found in a paper published in the Journal of Management Studies. It found that teams were able to learn from their mistakes when they took a problem-solving orientation. This orientation in turn was based on developing cooperative but not competitive goals within the team. At Enron, the toxic company culture was far from a problem-solving orientation. If anything, it was the opposite, a not-my-problem mindset. Borget and Mastroeni's self-dealing was not an aberration. It was the norm. Enron discouraged cooperation and emphasized competition. These counterproductive values meant that when problems came up, employees were more likely to get defensive and point fingers instead of working together to find a solution. This attitude made it virtually impossible for the group to learn from the profit-shifting fiasco and grow together. In the short term, the most significant result of the fraud was that Rich Kinder, one of Lay's friends from the University of Missouri, emerged as the company's second-in-command. Kinder's rise within Enron was the result of one very important quality. He got things done. Kinder was, in many ways, the antithesis of Lay. Lay was a pushover who refused to make tough decisions because he wanted everyone to like him. Kinder, however, was a rough-and-tumble, strong-armed SOB. Lay had delusions of grandeur and believed he could single-handedly shape the future of the energy business. Kinder, by contrast, was a sober-minded, pragmatic leader. He maintained discipline in a way that Lay was simply incapable of doing. In 1987, Kinder was promoted to chief of staff so that he could prevent another embarrassment like what happened with Borget and Mastroeni. He ended up doing a lot more than that. In 1988, Kinder effectively seized control of the company at a meeting which Enron employees remembered as the come to Jesus moment. When Kinder stepped into the fray, Enron was a mess. McLean and Elkine described the situation thus. Morale was terrible. Backbiting had become part of the Enron culture. Power plays were a daily occurrence, and it was nearly impossible for the company to act decisively because executives felt they could always get lay to reverse a management decision. All the politicking had practically paralyzed the company. The soon-to-be legendary meeting opened as usual, with Lay pontificating on the importance of deregulation. Then, suddenly, Kinder shouted, Enough of this! and turned on the other employees. He declared that he was putting a stop to the BS. He said the company's problems were like alligators. As quoted in The Smartest Guys in the Room, Kinder said, There are alligators in the swamp. We're going to get in that swamp, and we're going to kick out all the alligators one by one. And we're going to kill them one by one. 
by the end of the meeting, Kinder was effectively in control of Enron. He backed up his colorful words with real action, cutting costs and paying down some of the company's debt. In 1988, the first year under his command, the company posted a $109 million profit. While Kinder stabilized Enron in the wake of the profit-shifting disaster, his natural risk aversion was probably never going to take them to new heights. And the fact remained that Ken Lay was determined to build America's premier natural gas company. The man who stepped up to turn that vision into a reality was Jeffrey Skilling. It wouldn't be too much of an exaggeration to call Skilling Enron's evil genius. Skilling made a name for himself early on, graduating from Harvard Business School in the top 5% of his class. From there, he took a job at McKinsey & Company, one of the nation's largest and most prestigious management consulting firms. It was there that he began consulting for Enron, and by the late 80s, he was spending half his time with them. Throughout his career, Skilling had always been an idea man, Coming up with the big idea was, for him, like hunting for the holy grail. Lay knew that Enron needed big ideas to become a big company, so Skilling was a natural fit. Skilling's first big idea was the gas bank. This was, essentially, a way to reduce exposure to the inherently risky business of natural gas. The gist of it was that natural gas producers would contract to sell to Enron, while purchasers would contract to buy from them. Then Enron would capture the profits between the two contracts. The company could thus lock in profits, reduce risk, and make money. Based on the allure of the gas bank idea, Kinder asked Skilling to leave McKinsey and join Enron in 1990. Skilling, who by then had become enamored of the potential in the natural gas business, agreed. More than anything, Skilling wanted to be in charge of the gas bank. It was his baby, and he was going to raise it right. Unbeknownst to Enron executives, by asking Skilling to join the company, they were making a deal with the devil. Of all the scoundrels that emerged at Enron over the years, none would prove to be more rotten and vicious than Jeffrey Skilling. A new division called Enron Finance was set up solely for Skilling. After some initial hiccups, Skilling got the gas bank up and running. The operation made money and reduced risk, just like he said it would. But there were also some unintended consequences. Skilling's endeavor introduced a new concept to Enron, a kind of black magic that spread throughout the company in the coming years, corrupting everything it touched. The concept seemed innocuous enough, but it unleashed a torrent of greed which could never be reined in. Essentially, Skilling introduced the idea that the natural gas contracts created by the gas bank could be traded, just like soybeans or pork bellies or oil. It was the same type of business Enron Oil had been engaged in, except that no one had ever tried it with natural gas contracts before. Skilling created the market. Then he showed just how much money could be made by exploiting it. 
any lessons learned from the Enron oil fiasco were soon forgotten. And Skilling introduced something else that was key to Enron's rapid growth, rampant fraud, and eventual downfall. Mark-to-market accounting. In traditional accrual-based accounting, income is recorded when it is earned and deductions are recorded when expenses are incurred. It is the standard method of accounting for most companies. But under mark-to-market accounting, the entire value of a contract is booked on the day you sign it, even if you haven't collected a single penny. Though mark-to-market accounting is common on Wall Street, no energy company had used it before Enron. Skilling didn't set out to start a shady business practice. He simply believed that mark-to-market reflected his business's true economic value. Further, Skilling believed that the big idea should be rewarded immediately and that that reward should be reflected in the books. Never mind that applying mark-to-market accounting would require accurately predicting the price of gas up to 20 years in the future, which was basically impossible. Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind spell out two further problems with mark-to-market accounting in the smartest guys in the room. First, since the actual money is only coming in quarter to quarter, there is often a large discrepancy between the profits the company is reporting to its shareholders and the cash it has on hand to run the business. Second, and more insidiously, mark-to-market accounting can cause a company to appear to be growing faster than it really is. This drives up stock prices, which, in turn, encourages the need to post even more growth. As McLean and Elkind put it, if you did one deal last quarter, in order to show growth, you have to do two the next, and four the quarter after that, and eight after that, and on and on. The culture skilling developed at Enron Finance was cutthroat. Big ideas were rewarded, and those unable to generate profit were quickly dispatched. Skilling himself believed that greed was the only significant motivation for any human endeavor. Most corporations wisely encourage teamwork between employees in order to facilitate efficiency and productivity. Skilling did the opposite. He intentionally discouraged teamwork and set his employees against each other, believing that conflict would lead to more big ideas and profit. Law professor Donald Langevoort scrutinized the company's mistakes in his paper, The Organizational Psychology of Hypercompetition, Corporate Irresponsibility and the Lessons of Enron. He suggested that Enron sought out employees with a high need for recognition and achievement and with a high degree of self-confidence. Those characteristics in themselves are not inherently destructive. The problem is, when egotism and self-aggrandizement are consistently rewarded, lower-level employees can start to think they should be running the show. So rather than feeling like soldiers working together in a platoon, all of Skilling's underlings conducted themselves like four-star generals. And no company has room for that many Napoleons. At Enron, it became commonplace for employees to steal credit for the achievements of others, undermine rivals behind their backs, and ignore orders from superiors. 
Skilling rewarded the pettiest, most callous, and most treacherous employees with promotions and fat bonuses, so long as they were making money. According to McLean and Elkind, no company can prosper over the long term if every employee is a free agent, motivated solely by greed, no matter how smart he is. Over time, as that culture infected the entire company, Enron began to rot from within. Coming up, we'll explore how Jeffrey Skilling set Enron on the path to damnation. Now, back to the story. In 1990, 36-year-old Jeffrey Skilling joined Enron on the strength of his idea to start a so-called gas bank that would minimize the risk inherent in the natural gas industry. In 1991, Skilling's division, Enron Finance, merged with Enron Gas Marketing, which sold natural gas to wholesalers. The new division was named Enron Capital and Trade Resources, or ECT, and Skilling ran it with an iron fist. He steadily rewarded the financial traders, whom he called originators, to the detriment of other employees. Since mark-to-market accounting meant that traders could claim a contract's projected profits as soon as they closed a deal, their clout in the company rose rapidly, as did their compensation. Then, to foster even more competition, Skilling implemented a semi-annual performance review committee. Every employee in his ECT division was given a rank from one to five, with one being the best. Earnings were all that mattered, so generating lots of income for ECT was the only way to get a rating of one. Those who received a one also received a huge bonus. Those rated a five, were fired. And since Skilling graded on a curve, at least 10% of his employees got the boot. Skilling's ruthless methods successfully grew the company, just not fast enough for his taste. He wanted more financing to grow ECT even faster. Since the trading contracts didn't produce much actual capital in the short term, he couldn't raise enough hard cash for investment. But Skilling didn't despair. He turned to securitization to generate even more cash flow. Securitization is a method of pooling various financial assets or debts and selling them to investors, who then collect interest on the debt. Essentially, it's a way for companies to raise funds. With securitization, Skilling was able to unleash even more rapid growth. By 1996, ECT was worth an estimated $650 million, the second most profitable division of Enron. And his brand of high-risk contract trading was taking over more and more of the business. Skilling was enormously successful, and thus enormously popular with Enron's executives. But he did have one serious rival at the company. Rebecca Mark. Mark oversaw Enron development, which focused on expanding natural gas production in international markets, particularly developing countries. While Skilling pursued nebulous contracts, trading, and speculation, vague ideas rather than concrete things, Mark was the opposite. Her business was all assets, 
pipelines, plants, and gas. And the contrasts didn't end there. Skilling was overweight and unkempt. Mark was stylish and put together. Skilling was blunt and crude. Mark was a charmer. Skilling chased immediate profits at minimal risk, while Mark pursued riskier, long-term projects. Mark saw Skilling as a scheming spider, incapable of rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands dirty. Skilling saw Mark as all flash and no substance, a vain sweet talker more concerned with image than maximizing profit. Naturally, the two hated each other. While Mark was diametrically opposed to Skilling on most fronts, she worked just as hard as he did. When she was put in charge of Enron development in the early 90s, the division had only a handful of employees and no assets. Mark quickly got to work, landing deal after deal to construct pipelines throughout the world. By 1996, she'd grown Enron development from 25 employees to 10,000. Ken Lay rewarded her by making her CEO of Enron International, which included not only developing markets, but also the company's valuable European assets. Yet many of the same problems endemic to Skilling's ECT were also present in Mark's Enron International, particularly an overemphasis on making deals. Like Skilling, Mark focused on short-term gains and cared little about actually delivering on promises to customers or managing projects. Once a deal was done, all that mattered was closing the next one. Over time, wise customers learned not to do business with Enron. Enron International was also incredibly expensive to run. Besides constantly traveling all over the world to get deals done, millions were often dumped into projects which never saw the light of day. But Enron International, much like Skilling's mark-to-market accounting, treated the projected revenue of a deal as if it were already money in the bank. So when Mark closed a deal to build a power plant in Vietnam, that became an asset. Never mind that the deal was later canceled and Enron in fact lost $18 million on it. Failed power plants aside, Enron continued to grow, tripling its stock price and posting a $520 million profit in 1995. CEO Ken Lay had little to do with this growth. It was driven by executives like Mark and Skilling. But Lay took credit for all of it. Enron was like a medieval kingdom. Countess Mark and Baron Skilling could run their own fiefdoms however they chose, so long as they paid lip service to King Lay. For his part, Lay was more interested in appearing kingly than actually running the company. The humble son of a Baptist preacher had his lunches served to him on sterling silver trays. That was when he bothered to show up to work at all. By the mid-90s, Lay was more interested in raising money for political campaigns and rubbing elbows with luminaries like the Bush family than running a company. Thanks to Lay, Enron became one of the biggest supporters of George W. Bush during his run for governor of Texas and later president of the United States. 
Lei was rewarded for his laziness with a million-dollar salary, an annual bonus of another million dollars, plus stock options worth tens of millions. He also had full use of the company's private airplane. Lei and his children used it so often that employees called it the Lei Family Taxi. An Enron jet was once flown to Monaco for the sole purpose of delivering a bed for Lei's daughter. Speaking of Lay's children, four out of five of them worked at Enron or a subsidiary. One son worked at another natural gas company with financial ties to Enron. When it was discovered that the prodigal son had embezzled over a million dollars, Lay rewarded him with a three-year contract worth another million bucks. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Besides the negligence and nepotism, Ken Lay was an anemic leader. He hated confrontation, so he preferred lying to employees rather than speaking harsh truths. Naturally, this was seen as weakness. Employees found that if Lay made a decision they didn't like, they could just browbeat him into changing his mind. And everyone knew that Lay's longtime friend, Richard Kinder, was really in charge of Enron. Lay and Kinder, however, were growing apart. Lay undervalued Kinder as an employee, and Kinder detested Lay's pomposity. Kinder felt that since he was already the de facto leader, he should be made CEO. Lay promised him the keys to the castle in the early 90s, but then, in classic Lay fashion, he changed his mind. Nevertheless, he assured Kinder that he would step down at the end of 1996 and put Kinder in charge. As the deadline approached, however, Lay had another change of heart. In a fit of self-delusion, Lay decided that Kinder wasn't ready to be CEO. It probably didn't help that Lay discovered Kinder was engaged in a romantic relationship with Lay's former assistant and trusted confidant. In November of 1996, Kinder went to a board meeting expecting to be promoted. Instead, Lay informed him that the board of directors had decided against making Kinder CEO. Kinder knew this was bull. Lay was hiding behind the board while he screwed over his old friend. By the end of the month, Lay announced he had accepted another five-year term as CEO and that Kinder was exiting the company. While he was at it, Lay gave himself a raise and more stock options. Though it was frustrating to be muscled out of Enron at the time, the betrayal turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Kinder used the sale of his Enron stock to start his own company, which grew into a multi-billion dollar enterprise as Enron imploded like a dying star. But for now, with Kinder gone, Lay planned to take on the vacant president title in addition to his positions as CEO and chairman of the board, but Jeffrey Skilling had other ideas. Skilling wanted the position for himself. Perhaps just as importantly, he didn't want Rebecca Mark to get it. So he confronted Lay with a threat. If he wasn't made president, he would quit and take half the trading department with him. True to form, Lay immediately caved 
and promoted skilling to Enron's president and chief operating officer. As soon as skilling was in charge, he moved to reshape the whole of Enron in ECT's image. High risk, high reward. He would make Enron nothing less than the world's leading energy company. To drive home the point, he even ordered vanity license plates with the initials WLEC. Skilling rewarded his loyal ECT lieutenants by doling out management positions to the highest earners. He poured his efforts into expanding speculation, often at the expense of actually building natural gas pipelines. For instance, Skilling decided to jettison Enron Oil & Gas, a subsidiary with strong profits, simply because it wasn't a trading division and he didn't like the CEO. Next, Skilling maneuvered to eliminate his biggest rival, Rebecca Mark. According to McLean and Elkind, over the next two years, the two became locked in the business equivalent of guerrilla warfare. Or, as one executive put it, it was basically prima donnas accusing other prima donnas of being a bigger prima donna. In order to hamstring Mark, Skilling made a play for her Western European holdings, insisting that the infrastructure there could be used to expand Enron's trading and marketing business. Mark balked at this and defended her turf. When the case was brought before Lay, Enron's CEO ultimately sided with Skilling. The reasoning shouldn't come as a surprise. Skilling made more money. In May of 1998, Mark stepped down as CEO of Enron International. She convinced the board to allow her to start a new subsidiary that would focus on water utilities. Having successfully defanged Mark, Skilling was content to let her play in the water business. At first, Mark considered calling her new company Watermark, but then she settled on Azurix. With Mark sidelined, Skilling had finished consolidating his power base at Enron. He now controlled a company generating $13 billion in revenue, employing nearly 12,000 people in 22 countries. But he was still monomaniacally focused on growing it into the world's leading energy company. In pursuing that dream, Skilling would turn Enron into a symbol of runaway corporate fraud, greed, and hubris. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Enron's story. We'll see how the exposure of their fraudulent practices led to one of the biggest bankruptcies in American history and the utter destruction of one of the big five accounting firms. For more information on Enron, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Smartest Guys in the Room, The Amazing Rise and Scandalous Fall of Enron by Bethany McLean and Peter Elkind extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time.
Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Con Artist was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.